What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. We are wrapping up our series today on the performance of a lifetime. We have been working through parts of the Sermon on the Mount, looking at what it really takes to put on such a performance. This isn't just getting on stage and acting a certain way in front of certain people. This is about a way of life. This is day in and day out performing for God with every part of our being. We talked in our first week about being salt and light and how God doesn't say, let your light shine when you feel like it. No, you got to shine both when you feel like it and when you don't. Then last week we talked about prayer, and as difficult as prayer may be for some of us, it's really all about coming home. We don't have to put on a stage performance when we pray to God. Just keep it simple. Prayer is just being with God, wrapped up by a God who loves you and will never let you go. And the great thing is the more you pray, the better you get at it. So keep praying and you'll be far better off than those folks who put on a a big showy performance with their fancy prayers. Now, in our last look at the performance of a lifetime, we are in the third and final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Sal is going to read for us. Jesus is sharing bits and pieces of wisdom in a number of areas, from money to worry to judging others. And then he comes to his conclusion about using God to make yourself look good. One example is of the fruit that, tree, that a tree bears, but he begins with what we call the golden rule. So let's hear that now from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 12 through 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. In everything due to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. The narrow gate, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it, for the gate is narrow, and the road is hard that leads to life and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in the ship's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their faith. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who said to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Go away from me, you evildoers. May our glorious Lord God bless this reading and hearing of his holy words today. Amen. And from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, make us an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts and lives that we might not be all flesh of all flesh and no substance. Make us genuine in our pursuit of you and care of this world you so graciously share with us. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sometimes doing the right thing can be hard to do. Some of you will know this already, but my wife Emily and I got married on Christmas Eve. It was in memory of Emily's grandparents who had died and were also married on Christmas Eve. But plenty of people thought we were a bit deranged for getting married on such an inconvenient date. And to this day, I'm still surprised at how many things were difficult about getting married. People got mad at us for who we invited to the wedding and who we didn't. People were mad at us that it snowed the day before the wedding and how inconvenient that made things. Even serving alcohol or not was a big deal. Emily comes from a a family of Mennonites, and my parents were strict teetotalers. uh, But no alcohol at a wedding felt to us like we were demanding not only for people not to drink, but also not to dance. So allowing alcohol made some people mad as well. The biggest problem of getting married on Christmas Eve, though, was figuring out what to do for our anniversary every year. It's like twins sharing a birthday or those unfortunate souls born on Christmas Day. You're always going to have to share, and you'll take a a second place to the big guy every time, guaranteed. Uh, Getting the right anniversary gift for the the person you love the most in this life can be tough, too, especially when prepping for Christmas is taking up all of your time. How do you do the right thing when people and circumstances and your own wishes, hopes, and dreams are pulling you in different directions? Makes me think of the good guy discount. Years ago, there was this guy that discovered what he called the good guy discount. He'd walk into a place, and when he was about to buy something, he would ask the person ringing him up if they had a discount. He'd say, I'm a good guy, you're a good guy, how about giving me the good guy discount? And it worked. About one out of five times, he says, he would get some kind of discount on whatever he was buying. So he told his friend Ben about it, and and this made Ben a little bit nervous. He felt uncomfortable about about it. He he was always embarrassed by this and felt kind of smarmy if he was asking for this discount, like he was weaseling his way in for something he didn't deserve. But with some pressure, he did try this on occasion, and Ben tried it and wasn't having any success until finally on his last try before giving up on trying this thing, he's in a cookware store and he's buying a pot and asks for the good guy discount. And the cashier says, yeah, okay, I'll give you 5% off on that. And it, it worked even for Ben. He got a good guy discount just for asking. But in the end, Ben says he really didn't feel right asking for it. Like being a good guy was some kind of coupon code. 
He realized he could think of himself as a good person, but still be doing the wrong thing. Instead, he'd much rather have the approval of his family and friends being good to them rather than saving some money. Ben's story gives us a window into a series of teachings Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus touches on all these different topics from anger to divorce and oaths all the way up to worry and judging others. Each time, Jesus seems to flip the script, pushing back against the world standards and blazing a new and unexpected trail. So we might look at these different areas and say, how could we possibly know what the right thing to do is? We are good guys and good gals trying to do the right thing. But Jesus' way can feel confusing. Shouldn't I just trust my gut and do what I think is the right thing? And at first, this might seem like the right path. Jesus says in what we know as the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. That term, the golden rule, was actually coined by John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, back in the 1750s. But the idea was popular even before Jesus. You could find it in a book of virtue or wisdom from ancient philosophers. Lots of people lived by this basic principle. But what is stunning is what comes right after it. Jesus doesn't say, do the right thing you want, uh, do the thing you want uh, someone to do to you. That's, that's not the way. He goes on to say, the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So according to Jesus, just being a nice guy trying to do the right thing, is not enough. It might be the golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do to you. And as an ancient sage once said, this is the whole law and everything else is just explanation. But following the law is not enough. The Apostle Paul makes this point in Romans 7. He says that the law is holy, Uh, just and good and reveals our sin, but also that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. The law can only condemn and that it is the Spirit of God in us that brings life. We need that Spirit to find true life. Back in Matthew 7, Jesus names two hugely important things that actually determine if we truly are the good people we think we are. The first thing is about the people we follow. This is the part about a tree and its fruit. Uh, We might quickly think of us as the tree and our actions as the fruit, or maybe even God as the tree and us as God's fruit, but that's not the analogy here. Jesus says, beware of the false prophets. He says they are like wolves in sheep's clothing, or like a bad tree bearing bad fruit. Don't follow people who bear bad fruit. These days, that probably has even more meaning for us. We follow all kinds of people, celebrities in their movies or magazines, authors in their books, creators on TikTok and YouTube, sports heroes. Who are you following? Do they bear good fruit. 
the list of teachings Jesus has just finished in the Sermon on the Mount ought to give us some indication. Do the people we follow get angry? Do they point the finger at others and call them fools? Do they lust? Do they break their promises? When someone hits them, do they hit back or do they turn the other cheek? Do they love only those who love them back or do they love even their enemies? When we follow people who don't live by the code, we have ceased being a disciple of Jesus. Instead, we have become a follower of the world, taking the wide gate and the easy road that leads to destruction. We have to choose to follow those who take the hard path to do the right thing, even when it's inconvenient, even when it goes against our goals and our agenda. And then Jesus points out a second group of people. After talking about those people who bear bad fruit, he invites us to look inward. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying we can do all kinds of things that look godly, but just because it looks like that on the outside doesn't mean that's what's true on the inside. We have a word for that. It's called self-deception. We, we might trick everybody out there about what's happening inside us, in our hearts, and we might even trick ourselves, but we aren't deceiving the Lord. And there's a, a joke about two rich, evil brothers who had everybody fooled. They went to church together and looked like model Christians, even though they weren't. A new pastor came to the church and saw right through their deception, though. And then suddenly, one of the brothers died. The day before the funeral, the remaining brother came to the pastor and had a big fat check made out to the pastor. He said, I have only one condition for this money. At his funeral, you have to say my brother was a saint. So the pastor agrees, and he deposits the check. At the funeral the next day, the pastor does not hold back. He says, he was an evil man. He cheated on his wife. He abused his children. And after a little more of this, he finally concludes with, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> In the end, this is really what bearing good fruit is about. It's about bringing to light deception. It's not just thinking good things, but doing good things. If we get so wrapped up in always seeing ourselves as the righteous one, as the good one who is right and needs no correction, we are no better than the false prophet that is a wolf in sheep's clothing. When we fail to see our own shortcomings, it means when we try and follow the golden rule, doing to others what we would have them do to us, instead of doing good like we think we're doing, will only perpetuate more bad. We will make the world worse as we are blinded by our own sense of self-righteousness. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about this. He is with the scribes and Pharisees who are the most knowledgeable, righteous, religious people in the country. And he says to them, curses on you. You cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Our faith and evangelism and the fruit of our lives cannot be something that makes us worse people 
It makes the people around us worse, too. Our faith has to lead to good fruit, to blessing others, to loving them better. And I'm not saying you won't have a bad day or things won't be tough at times, but you've got to put the work in now to be ready for those challenges. Build those spiritual muscles so your life is full of love. That's how you put on the performance of a lifetime. Not by faking it and deceiving others with a veneer of what looks good, but by doing the hard work of preparing for trouble and being ready to respond with love. One of my all-time favorite stories comes from the novel The Brothers Karamazov. In it, one of the brothers imagines the story of, of Jesus appearing in the Spanish city of Seville during the Inquisition. The people are filled with fear as those who are declared heretics of the church are burned alive. And at the height of this awful situation, Jesus suddenly appears among them. This isn't the triumphant apocalyptic return of Christ at the end of time, but an appearance. It's, it's Jesus in the flesh, but only for a little while. As he walks in among the people, people just know who he is. They are drawn to him and come running toward him as they sense the compassionate love that burns in his heart. A blind man calls out to him and says, heal me so that I can see. And Jesus does. He, he touches the man's eyes and scales fall from them so he can see. A funeral procession comes down the street and a little girl has died. The mother is weeping and the crowd starts to say, he will raise your child. The mother throws herself at Jesus' feet and says, If it really is you, raise my child. Jesus stops the procession, and they lay the casket at his feet. He reaches in and says, Little girl, arise. And she does. A frenzy takes over the crowd as they cry and sob and are completely confused. That's when the grand inquisitor takes notice. He sees this little girl come out of the coffin and he immediately orders his guards to seize the man and throw him in jail. When the inquisitor sits with Jesus, he asks, is it really you? But then he says, don't answer that. It doesn't matter who you are. Tomorrow, I will burn you at the stake as the very worst of heretics. And the, the very people who today kissed your feet will tomorrow heap the embers of flame on them. It's a terribly sad story. But it reminds us of how easily our faith can become twisted into something completely unrecognizable. We can reject the very people and principles that we say we are defending. We can get so wrapped up in our own way of thinking, we can completely miss the much bigger, grander life that God calls us to. The great antidote to that kind of vanity and hubris is to be humble. Recognize your shortcomings. Accept your failings. And watch closely for the presence of the Lord in your life. Let's end with this, and there's a comedian who once pointed out that servicemen and women always fly coach. He had never seen a soldier in first class in his life, and every time he would see a soldier on a plane, he would think, you know what, I should give him my seat. It would be the right thing to do, and it would mean a lot to him or her. And yet, he never has, he's never done it once, but he would joke about how proud of himself he was for having thought of this noble act. 
And then a few years ago, the actress Amy Adams really did give up her seat for a service member. She was flying to Los Angeles to shoot a new movie, and as she was boarding, she noticed the service member being seated in the back in coach. So she quietly spoke with a, a flight attendant and got permission to switch seats with him. The soldier was surprised and delighted, but had no idea who the person that switched with him was. A fellow passenger who witnessed the whole thing, though, posted it on social media. And when Amy Adams got off the plane, the the media surrounded her asking about what had happened. Her response was very simple. She said, I didn't do it for attention for myself. I did it to bring attention to the troops. She wanted to put the spotlight where it belongs. Doesn't God call us to do something similar? This is not about thinking about doing the right thing and then never doing it. This is about bearing good fruit, to put the spotlight in the right place. This journey of life is not about us. It's about God. It's about God's work to transform this world. We play only a small part in it, not to bring attention to ourselves, but to bring it to God. It's Jesus who deserves all the honor and glory. So when you are putting on the performance of a lifetime, living life to the fullest, remember it's not about being good or even helping someone else by doing what you want them to do for you. This life is about honoring God with the fruit of our lives. May you live honorably and humbly as you put on the performance of a lifetime. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.